Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, if you'll be turning to chapter 3. You remember last week we discussed the first uh, 11, actually the first 10 verses, where John the Baptist is introduced. And you remember, as Matthew's uh, way of doing it is, he introduces... John the Baptist, as he does various issues within the context of the gospel, especially the person and work of Christ, he always goes back and substantiates what he is saying, what Jesus is doing, who Jesus is, etc. He always regularly substantiates everything in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. And, of course, the Scriptures that John the Baptist, I'm sorry, that Matthew uses is not the New Testament. Matthew was not using Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the letters of Paul, the letters of John, etc. He is using the Old Testament, which again should cause us to realize that the Old Testament is significantly necessary in understanding if we're going to appreciate the fullness of the ministry of God in his Son, in his birth, in his proclamation, his birth, and when he is baptized in the wilderness and his going forth to preach the gospel all the way to the cross and in the resurrection. And so as we continue with this, what we're seeing is this. In Matthew, we are simply seeing the culmination of that which God had promised. When was the first promise made? Genesis 3:15 After the fall God immediately moved not being taken back because he knew this would happen how do we know he knew this would happen Ephesians 1:4 And so Ephesians 1:4 tells us God knew what would happen there are some who would teach God didn't know so began to make plans to move forward well of course that's not correct And so God, knowing what would happen, had already prepared. And even before the creation, even before the first let there be out of the mouth of God, before the creation itself, the entire purpose and process of our redemption was in the heart of God. It was already, if you would, an accomplished fact waiting only for its revelation within the context of time and activity. Do we see that? We remember, we know that. This is always, this has always been the purpose of God. And at the particular moment when he said, let there be, he began to bring forth the revelation of himself through the creation of the cosmos the creation of the Garden of Eden, the creation of man, Adam and Eve, to live in the garden as his image bearers. Remember Genesis 1.26? And in that context, and according to that purpose, the very nature and character of God was to be established and revealed upon the earth and was to fill the earth through the progeny, through the seed, through the descendants of Adam and Eve. As Adam obeyed God and walked with God in a way that his own people, his own children, would become 
and obedient people to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. But Adam disobeyed, remember Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And as a result of that, God immediately moved to maintain and to continue and to reclaim his intention as it was established first in Adam. And so he promised in Genesis 3, 15, there's another man coming. There's another Adam coming. He doesn't say it quite that way, but you remember what he says. And this one will bruise the enemy on, I'm sorry, will crush the enemy on his head or as to his head. And this one will be bruised as to his heel. He will be hurt. But in that, he will conquer the enemy's work. He will destroy the enemy's power. He will forgive God's people, and he will reestablish God's purpose upon the earth in himself, moving forward through the establishment of the church. And so, John the Baptist is the revelation of that great eternal event which God had purpose in the very beginning, moving forward through thousands of years, thousands of years, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, anticipating, promising, prophesying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, the Messiah is coming. And finally, John the Baptist is on the scene, and he proclaims the coming of the Messiah, which we saw last week. Remember, John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God. And John is proclaimed by Jesus to be the greatest of all the prophets. Why? Because he specifically points to the Messiah rather than says he will be coming. John says, here he is. So we pick up today. In verses 11 and 12, and John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's look at it. I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, some of you were in some of the previous classes that we had, especially when we went through the first three chapters of Genesis. And remember what we saw. Water, biblically, in the Old Testament, is a symbol of a couple of different things. And predominantly, it is a symbol of washing, of cleansing the cleansing away of the impurity and the pollution and the filthiness of sin. And that water which is poured out is a symbol of the work of the Holy Spirit who cleanses from sin, who purifies us as God's people. And so Psalm 51, 7, you remember David is praying and he's been caught, if you would, by the Holy Spirit. God always catches us in our sin and shows us our sin and convicts us of our sin. And remember the prophet says, thou art the man. Remember David heard the story about the little sheep being taken by the guy next door who had all the money and whatever. Thou art the man. And David repents. And in this psalm, he's asking God to deal with his sin. And he says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And so there is the understanding, we don't have time this morning to go back through the whole panoply of the Old Testament, but washing was a major function of the Levitical legislation of the entire structure of you, if you would, of cleansing and forgiving the people.
So John was sent into the wilderness what? to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah by baptizing those who repented of their sin. And in doing so, in being the one who baptized people who were coming to repent, therefore to be baptized, he was saying this is going to be the essential ministry of the Messiah. This one will come as the baptizer, as the one who will wash his people of their sin And he will do that by the Holy Spirit, by giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, why baptism? Because the water of baptism was a picture of God's washing his people, the pollution of their sin, and judgment against sinners. It always had two issues. Washing had to do with the cleansing of his people, the cleansing from the defilement of their sin, and also his judgment against sinners. So there were always these two issues. And we're going to find out next time we come together that Jesus is the one who will take unto himself and experience in himself these two purposes or these two functions, if you would, of baptism. Cleansing and judgment. Let's look at a couple of Old Testament scriptures to show this. First one is going to be the Old Testament scripture of the deluge. Do you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the deluge? What is that? Noah's flood. You can also say deluge. Noah's flood. You remember what had happened? The earth had become corrupted, polluted because of man's sin. And so what God will do is to say, I'm going to wash the world of the pollution of sin. And in doing so, I'm going to save my man Noah and his family in the ark and I will take them through the waters of the washing and I'm going to take them through it in a safety in the safety of the ark so as Noah and his family eight in all are inside the ark they are experiencing the washing and the judgment of God against sin but they are experiencing it in the ark And so as they experience in the ark the waves and the water and the judgment of God and the washing of God of the impurities of this world, the ark is itself being, if you would, beaten and bashed by the waves and the water. But the family is safe inside the ark. And they are, if you would, vicariously being beaten and washed And they will be saved alive because they are in the ark. And you remember, interestingly, when the Lord says to Noah, go in and there's only how many entrances to the ark? There's only one door in the ark. And when you go in, you close it. And the door is closed and locked from the inside so that no one can come in once the door is closed. But there is a door. What does Jesus say in John 10 verse 7, I am the door. Now, he's talking about the sheepfold, but what? I am the door. And so all of those people who are outside the ark, banging on the wall or whatever it is, they cannot come in. Why? Because, you see, it is God's sovereign decree who is saved. I know people don't like that. But simply, you must look at the word and let the word tell us what God 
is all about. God is the one who tells Noah, you build the ark. God is the one who says, Noah, you take your sons and your daughters-in-law and your wife and you come into the ark. And then God is the one who says, Noah, shut the door. And then everyone else who is not in the ark perishes in the flood. It is a judgment against sin. It's also a washing of the world. And it is a picture of a new created earth, a newly created earth where God begins again, if you would, in Noah as a type of Adam. I will begin again with this man and we will move forward. Now we'll find that Noah and his family will fail in this, but we see that picture of God saying in this, there is a cleansing here. There is a raising up of an Adam, but it won't work. But this is a type of him who will come and who will cleanse his people and who will judge of sin in them and in the world. Remember in Exodus 14, the Lord washed Israel from the impurities of Egypt. How? By leading them through the waters of the Red Sea. He had judged sin, and now he's leading his people who have come under the blood of the lamb. Remember the blood that was put in the basin? The lamb was slaughtered. Its throat was cut. The blood was poured into the basin, that cut-out portion at the bottom of the door. There was a basin, a cut-out portion at the bottom of the door. The blood of the lamb was poured into that, and then they took hyssop, and they dipped it in the basin at the bottom of the door and put it on the lentils and the doorposts so that literally the entire entrance into the house was an entrance to a wall of blood. And those who were in the house were saved because they trusted in the shed blood that God said, if you trust me, if you adhere, you know, do this and trust the blood that was shed, I will save you. Everyone outside the house was not saved. And the angel of the Lord passed through the land, you remember, and destroyed the firstborn in Egypt. Why? Because you see, Egypt was, had held God's son, Israel, and in Israel, God's eternal son was also the seed of the woman who was in the nation at that time. And Satan, through this demonic figure of Pharaoh, this Antichrist, held people of God and the purposes of God, if you would, at bay until God was ready to move. And then God broke that power and released his people. And so you see in Exodus 19, 4 through 6, the Lord explained his purpose for baptizing them. Why did God baptize? Why did he take them through the Red Sea? Why did he wash them? He says, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Why? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So why does God do this? So we can be what First Peter says, and in fact, I think it was uh, Brenda this morning who quoted this during prayer. We can be what First Peter says, First Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Verse 10, once you were not a people, you know, like you were in living in Egypt. You weren't the collected people of God when you were in Egypt, but now you are God's people. And then 1 John 1, 7 says this, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us. It washes us from all our sin. And so Israel was saved to be God's Adamic nation. Israel was to be God's nation upon the earth that God washed and cleansed and sanctified and consecrated to be his representative upon the earth. 
to declare through their obedience to his law, through the sacrificial system, to declare to the world the truth about the nature and character of God. And so Israel was to be God's image-bearing people. And if Israel was successful in this, they would slowly be a witness to the nations and through this great work of God in Israel, maintaining his people and they walking with God in obedience, God was going to be saving all the nations, saving people out of the nations so that his purpose would be accomplished. But you remember Israel failed. Once again, it is a picture that man cannot succeed in any of these endeavors, no matter how much he tries and no matter how much is given to him, there's only one man who can succeed as being God's image bearer upon the earth. Not even an innocent Adam, no sin in Adam, a perfect man. But not even a perfect man, an innocent man, having no sin in him at all, living in a, in a perfect place, not even that man can image God the way God is to be imaged. Only one man out of the bosom of God, can image the Father, right? So you see what God is doing here. The water of baptism is a picture of God's judgment and cleansing. And this was what Jesus was emphasizing, remember, in John chapter 13. Remember at the communion meal, the last meal before the arrest of Jesus. At the end of the meal, what did Jesus do? He did something that was not done at communion and at Passover meals. What, what did he do? He got up. He took out off his outer garments. He girded the towel around his waist, you know, his uh, outer garments around his waist. He took the towel. And he took a basin of water. And what did he begin to do? Wash the feet of the disciples. Wash their feet. Now, when you see he's using a basin to wash the feet of the disciples, where should your mind go when it says Jesus is using a basin of water to wash the feet? Where should your mind go? To the tabernacle, what's part of the furniture? The great laver. Remember the priests would go to the great laver and wash themselves. Wash themselves before they could enter into the divine presence in the holy place and then into the holy of holies once a year. The priest had to wash himself. He was consecrated. He had been, his sins had been dealt with. He had already you know, sacrifice the lamb for his own sin. And now he's going to go into the presence of God and he has to wash himself of any defilement of sin that was, you know, kind of clung to him. You remember years ago, you could take a bath and be really clean. And then you go outside and you come back in. And what was the first thing if you lived in a house like my mama ran? She ran a house, let me tell you. And before you came into the house, what did your mama make you do? You took off your shoes or at least you cleaned your feet. Don't come into mama's house with dirty feet. Now, having dirty feet didn't mean that you were not a child of God. Doesn't mean that you're not your mama's little boy or little girl. But what it does mean is that you're bringing into the family's dwelling. You're bringing into the sanctity of the family the pollution of the world, the dirt of the world. And so even good parents would tell you, wash your feet. 
So Jesus kneels down and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And of course, what does Peter say? He ain't going to wash my feet. No way. And Jesus says, well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have none of me. Well, then what does Peter then say? Wash all of me. I mean, from one extreme to the other. You ain't touching me. Now wash my whole body. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, you don't need your whole body washed, just your feet. Why? Because you have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken. God's people are cleansed of the guilt of their sin at the cross. So what do we need? We need to be washed regularly by the Holy Spirit. Remember, by the washing of the water of the Word. We need to be washed regularly by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus coming to John, John washing, John doing this baptism shows us that we need to be continually washed and cleansed by the Holy Spirit. The ministry of God's Spirit was also pictured by the use of the water. It was not only the cleansing, but it's also the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John seven thirty seven to 39. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You remember, we've talked about living water. Where did you see living water first appear in the gospel of John? Chapter what? Four. Remember the woman who came to the well during the day about noon and got the water out of the well? And why did she come by herself at noon? Because she was a woman of real repute. All the other ladies came early in the morning in the cool, got their buckets of water, and went back home and had water for the rest of the day. She can't go with them because she's not a nice lady. She's unclean. She's one of those sinners, don't you see? She likes men too much. And so she's doing this, and Jesus is sitting at the well, and he begins a conversation with her, which is shocking enough that a Jew would talk to a Samaritan woman. Remember, a half-breed. Samaritans are half-breed. They're part Jew, part uh, uh, whatever else in the land. They're half-breeds. They are an interracial people. Interracial. Half-breeds. Be careful how we think of half-breeds, of interracial people. Be careful how we think about that. And here's a half-breed interracial woman, and Jesus stops to talk to her. And he says, you know, if you'd have asked me, I would have given you rivers of what? Living water. What does living water mean? Water that continues to flow. And, of course, she says, hey, give me this living water because I'm tired of coming and do this bucket thing every day at noon. I'd like to have that living water. We all have living water, hopefully, at the home when you turn on the faucet and it turns on. That's living water. Can you imagine? That's what she wanted, and I don't blame her. But Jesus was talking about her himself. And so in John 7, he says, living water, he says, come unto me, all you who thirst, and, I, I, you know, come to drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers, rivers of living water. You see a picture of that in Ezekiel chapter 40, by the way. Now, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. And as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Spirit of God was not given in this way until after the resurrection. 
And then after the resurrection, since all righteousness had been fulfilled by one man, God's man, now that one man has the authority to send the Holy Spirit upon the earth to baptize his people in the Spirit and with the Spirit. So John says this, He who is coming after me is mighty than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. See, John understood by revolution, revelation, revolution, that his ministry anticipated the appearance of the Messiah. We're not going to read it, but if you go back to John chapter 1, John would tell you, I knew who he was because the Spirit had already told me upon whom, you remember the dove, he is the one who will baptize you. So John knows who Jesus is when Jesus comes forward. He knows him. How does he know him? By revelation of the Holy Spirit. And so, knowing this, he says, he kind of resists baptizing Jesus. He knows who Jesus is and what happens. Then John, verses 13 to 14, came from Galilee in the Jordan to be, sorry, Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. So what happens? At first, John refuses to baptize Jesus. He refuses to. Now, I, I, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm on John's side here. If I'm out there preaching and baptizing people for repentance, for repentance of sin, and the Lord says, and the Holy Spirit says, look, that man who is coming, you see him over there? He is the Messiah. He is the one that all the prophets have been speaking about. He is that prophet like unto Moses. You remember in Deuteronomy 18, 15, he's that promised prophet. He's the one who was promised in Genesis um, 3, 15. He's the one of Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born. He is the one of uh, Isaiah 7, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He's the one. Here he is. He's coming. I think most of us would have said, uh, here, you baptize me. But Jesus says, no, John, it is necessary for me to be baptized. Why? Because Jesus is about to announce the content and the purpose and the power and the effect of the ministry that God sent him to fulfill upon the earth. And he says, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Do you see where we are? Necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And so in being baptized, Jesus was stating that he had come to fulfill all, right, all the righteous requirements of God on behalf of his people so that they could be restored to God's original intention that was lost in Adam. And what was that righteousness that Jesus is here to fulfill? What was it? What is that righteousness that Jesus is here to fulfill? Well, let's think again. He's here as the last Adam. Remember, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five calls him the last Adam. What was God's intention in Adam? That he image God. Remember Genesis 1, 26. And so, what was his function as the image of God? Genesis 2.15, remember, to what? Work and keep the garden. Guard the sanctuary of God. 
the place of God, the garden, and maintain the worship of God. How do we know those? That's what it means because you have to go to Numbers 3, 7, and 8 to see that, the instruction to the Levites that God gives to them. So that's how you know that. And so it's not about just planting and pulling up weeds and watering little flowers and daffodils. It's not about that. It's about, first of all, guarding the sanctuary of God. Guarding it from what? Guarding it from what? Well, let's remember. In Genesis 2-7, what happened? God bent down and out of the dirt, what did he do? He formed a man and he breathed the ruach, the spirit, the ruach of God. He breathed into this man the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Remember that in Genesis 2-7? Then what did God do? He took the man from the field, from outside the garden, and put him in the garden. And so we see in the earth, in that creation, there is a distinction. There is a place called the field. What is the field? Well, the field is the place where the active presence of God and the familial family relationship and worship of God does not exist in the field. And so in that way, it is a place of chaos because where God is, he brings order. And so he takes Adam out of that having created him, and puts him in the garden. And so Adam is to guard the garden. Guard the garden from what? Anything of the field, anything outside of the garden, anything not according to the purpose, anything not according to the purity of God, Adam is to guard against allowing any impurities, Anything of sin or rebellion, anything of chaos, anything of whatever to come into the presence of God. He is to guard. Do we get that? Remember, that's what Genesis 2.15 says. And so, how is he going to do that? How is he going to do that? He's going to do it through his obedience. So then the next verses, 16 and 17, say to Adam... Adam, there are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of any tree of the garden, but what? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the righteous requirement of Adam in order to be the image bearer of God, in order to be the one who correctly, effectively protects from the pollution of anything outside of the garden, the only way that can happen is through Adam's absolute and continual obedience to the will of God. That's how Adam is to guard the garden, through his obedience. And in that obedience, God, Adam is not only guarding the garden, but he's also maintaining the worship of God, maintaining the honor and the integrity and the praise and the dependence and his whole submission to God so that when the Lord walks into the garden in the cool of the evening, 
a theophany or Christophany, probably a, a physical manifestation of Christ in the garden. Literally, the Messiah, the Son of God, walks with Adam and talks with Adam face to face. Listen to me, face to face. The word face, remember, is the same word for presence, the presence of God. When you see the Old Testament, it says the presence of God, the presence of God. It has to do with his face. The face of God is his presence. The face of God is his communion, is his revelation of himself, is his love toward us, is his, you know, favor toward us. It is everything. Your face. Those of you who have had relatives and they've gone away, it's nice to talk to your son on the phone and do this. What do you call it? Skype, isn't it? He's in Alaska. Right? Doug. Well, one of them is. Anyway, I'm thinking about Doug. And so that's great to see Doug on, on that screen, isn't it? But what's best, Mama? But what's best? Face to face. Nothing takes that place, does it? You can have all the pictures you want. You can have all the Skype you want. You can have all the letters you want. You can have all the texts and emails you want. And that's wonderful. But those are secondary to finally seeing your loved one, what? Face to face. Once you see your loved one face to face, all of that other stuff, I appreciate it, but I'm not interested in that now. I have my baby with me. So when your baby's with you, whoever that is, you don't need to say, hey, I'm glad you're here, Henry, but I'm going to look at your pictures. I'm glad you're here, Henry, but I want to go read an email about you from you. Everything else is set aside. It's wonderful. But all of it pointed to one issue. I want to see you face to face. That's the whole purpose of Adam in the garden. So that as he he dwells in the communion of God face to face. And as that face to face presence of God matures Adam. And blesses Adam. And increases Adam. And leads Adam. Adam grows in communion with this God. And his understanding of this God grows. And we begin to see through Adam, through his person, through his activities, through his words, through his actions. We begin to see the face of another man. Don't we? What does Romans 8.29 tell us? We have been predestined to be conformed to God's Son. We are to be displaying the face of another man in everything and anything that we do. And so Adam was to be the righteousness of God upon the earth, which was to be carried out only in one way, obedience. And Adam was the only created man. Listen to me. Adam was the only created man. Will you listen to me one more time? Adam was what the only created man who had the responsibility and the ability to earn God's presence. Nobody else can do it except one man. Do we see that? And so in chapter 3 of Genesis, what do you read? And the serpent was more crafty than all of the beasts of the field whom the Lord God hath created. 
And he said to the woman, how did that slippery, slimy serpent Satan get into the garden? Genesis 2.15. Adam was to what? Guard the garden. And Satan came in because Adam failed to guard the garden. That was Adam's first error or sin, if you would. And so, because of the fall, man was expelled from the garden. You remember Genesis 23 and 24. And what was put over the entrance of the garden? Cherubim. The cherubim in the Old Testament are the guardians of God's honor. The cherubim were put at the gate of the garden. So, humanity could not go back in. And Adam and his family, at least initially, probably lived very close to the gate of the garden. And were given altar, the revelation of an altar to begin to sacrifice to God, indicating that blood had to be shed. And all they could do is come near the gate, come near the gate, but they couldn't enter because of the cherubim. And all of that spoke of another man. Who would fulfill all righteousness. What righteousness? Hebrews says he has been what? Tempted in all respects. Remember that? Where does that come from? Hebrews what? What is this? How many fingers do I have up? You see why we haven't. Not number one in the saints. I mean you know we can't have difficulty. You know. He was without sin. And here we have the last Adam. No sin. And we'll find out in a couple of weeks. He's going to meet the tempter. Just as the first Adam did. But this Adam will do. What Adam. Number one failed to do. He will guard the garden. He will maintain the worship of God. He will live and. Fulfill all of the righteous requirements of God so that now there will be a man whose work of obedience wins the reward of having a people for God. Amen. Not our works. You see why Paul is so adamant. It's not your works of merit. Why? Because if it is, then that decreases Christ. It is only the work of one man. Absolute obedience. So he says to John, John, I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. And I'm going to go through this baptism, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to say something in this baptism that is going to declare And summarize all of the tabernacle, its function, as first of all, the dwelling of God. And then it becoming the tent of meeting, which fulfills God's purpose in creating Adam and Eve. So that they can come back through the high priest who once a year comes into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the everlasting, with the blood of the covenant. So that the presence of God may be enjoyed by the people once again for another year through the various festivals that are given in Leviticus 23. 
That is all going to be summarized in the baptism of Jesus, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. Why is it important to know the Old Testament? Because when we see it, then we see the grandeur of what this is all about. It's not just about a man being bathed. It's about the glory of our God in having his people brought home again. And then I'll just give you a little hint because I'm going to have to go over this in a couple of weeks so you'll have to bear with me now that you know it. And the result of this is in Revelation 22 verse 4. What do those five words say? It's, it's the result. And they shall see his face. Finally, man dwelling face to face with God as God had intended in the beginning is now fulfilled at the end. Isn't this Bible amazing? And people tell me you can't trust it and it's all filled with error. Aren't you glad God is showing to us what is really going on? Next week, we will not have a class because of Christmas Day on Sunday. So we'll just begin church service at 10. And uh, it'll be a truncated service. They've told me I only have about three hours to preach next Sunday. So that's all I'm going to take. So those of you may want to come on Saturday instead of Sunday, whatever. Then on the first Sunday in January, I think it's January the 4th. I could be wrong about that. I'm sorry, 8th, 8th, I'm sorry, the first Sunday in January, I'm getting there, yeah, I'm, I'm slow. See, I don't know a lot of stuff. On the first Sunday in January, we will have a time together, though, but praying for the church and praying, you know, for the next year, we, we, we'll be getting together on that morning, if you would, and then on the 8th, that's the second Sunday, we'll resume and we'll talk about just the last two verses, 16 and 17 of, uh, of uh, Matthew chapter 3. And pray that some kind of way the Lord will give me ability to kind of summarize all of that tabernacle, Levitical, high priest system in just those two verses. It's amazing. See you next time.